name, a welcome to each of you. Good to see you here this morning. And uh, welcome to our visitors. Trust that you can enjoy your day here with us. And yes, it's good to see you here, Stevie. We're blessed to have the privilege to be together this morning again. And we sang that song, that last song we sang, Peace Be Still. Where do you find yourself this morning? Is there peace? Even in the midst of the storm. We've been going through 1 Peter, as Jason mentioned, and I'm looking here at the last portion of this letter in 1 Peter 5. And as you recall, 1 Peter does talk a lot about suffering. And so we've been looking at that a number of times throughout this book. And we realize that we're not exempt from suffering. Even though we may not face it the way that these people have with their physical persecution. Nonetheless, we face persecution. So here in this portion of Scripture 5 through 14, I I plan to to make this the concluding message of this series here in 1 Peter. And in my last message, we looked at Peter's instructions to the shepherd's responsibility. And he's giving direction on how to lead the flock there in the first four verses of 1 Peter 5. And then we concluded with a few thoughts there from verse 5 with how the flock is to respond to their shepherds. It doesn't matter what position you have in church or any one of us that has any one of us, no matter where you're at in church life and or your position, we all are giving account to the chief shepherd. And that's who we need to allow him to direct our lives. So ultimately, we're giving, we are responsible to the chief shepherd. As I mentioned before, in this letter, Peter gives a lot of instruction to, a lot of encouragement to those that are suffering and how to work through that. And so the message for today, I've titled it Steadfast in Suffering. While it is important to be steadfast in suffering, I realize that it is also important to be steadfast no matter where you're at in life. Some of you might be going through difficult things. Some of you, maybe life is going fairly smoothly. And so the encouragement is that we are all steadfast, no matter where you're at in this life. Because Jesus said in Matthew 24, 13, He that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. He that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. The important thing is to be steadfast to the end. Not only start well, but be steadfast to the end. And one of the crucial lessons to learn as Christians, as believers, is how to handle suffering. In this fallen world, suffering is something that will not be avoided. It's a part of us. And it can be the physical suffering that goes with living in in these frail bodies that get sick and die. And it may be the grief of watching a loved one suffer and die. It may be problems stemming from your own sins. 
or sins that others had committed against you. It may be the common pressures of life, of providing for a living and wondering how are you going to pay all the bills. It may be this mental, emotional suffering of struggling with feelings of inadequacy, of bitterness and worry. So these things, we all face these things in different times of our lives. But wherever it comes from, suffering is inevitable. And as it is often stated, we often hear that about the things that we go through, it either makes you bitter or better, depending on how you handle it. It can make you a bitter person or it can make you a better person. Circumstances have a way of changing us and shaping us. Whether it's some kind of tragedy or trauma that you have faced or some difficult journey that God has allowed you to go through. These things affect us and how we cope with them and how we respond to them does say something about who we are. And how we cope with these things and respond to them not only impacts us, but it impacts those close to us, especially family members, the people closest to us. How we respond to the things, the, the difficult circumstances the trying things that we go through in life, how we cope with them and respond to them impacts those around us. And I find it interesting that in Jesus' parable about of the sower, he gives the, the four different the soils there, of the kinds of soil. But in that parable, two of the three soils that, that failed to produce a good crop represent people who did not know how to go through suffering or how to suffer how to handle suffering it talks about the rocky soil jesus explains that uh, you can turn to mark 4 16 through 19 if you want but i'm not going to read that portion there but there jesus is, is, explains about the rocky soil and he pictures those who receive it who receive the word joyfully at first but the roots do not go deep so when affliction or a persecution comes, they fall away. That's the picture that Jesus gives there on the, on the rocky soil. The roots do not go deep enough. And so when they are faced with difficult things, they, they fall away. The second thing there that he talks about is the thorny, another one of the soils he talks about is the thorny ground. And it reflects those who seem to grow for a while, but then allow, among other things, the cares of the world. That's the description that Jesus gives there about the cares, the burdens of the world to choke out the word so that it does not bear fruit. And so Jesus said something about how that we are to be rooted with him and have him. That's where we place our faith and our trust so that we can bear fruit so that we can be faithful, so that we're faithful through the difficult things that we face. As I mentioned before, being a Christian does not exempt us from the trials and the hardships of the world. But Jesus also gave us the promise. He says, be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. 
And if you're a Christian, that means you are in Christ, right? If you're a Christian, that means you are in Christ. And with Christ, we have the power to be overcomers. There are four things that I want to to look at in this scripture today about steadfast in suffering, and that is clothed with humility, casting our cares, the third thing, constant alertness, and then confidence in the future. So the first thing about being clothed with humility, I'm going to bring, starting there in verse 5, I know we looked at that a little bit, the beginning of that verse in the last message, but I feel like there's, there's a lot there about humility that goes on with the next few verses there. How are we clothed with humility? And I think uh, humility or, or humble is, is a word that we kind of struggle with. How do you define humility? And how do I define that in my own life? It's probably easier to look at someone else and, and to think that they're a humble person. Because how do I know whether I'm hum- humble? Because about when I say I'm humble, I'm way off and I'm not, right? And so we kind of struggle with this thing of being humble and whether I say I'm a humble person. And yet, Scripture does talk of, there's a lot of scriptures about humility and humbleness. It, it's, it's there. You look throughout the scripture. I was amazed how many verses that you can turn to about humbleness and humility. Because if, if I appear to be, if I say I'm humble, well, then there's probably some pride in my life, right? And so we, we kind of toil that thing around of what is humble or humility. So how can we know if we're living in humility? Humility is the ability to be without pride or arrogance. It's not about myself. And it's a character that should be seen in those who follow Jesus Christ. And Jesus really is the perfect example of humility. We have that example in John 13. We went through this scripture last Sunday with uh, communion and feet washing. But I I thought I would just mention that here again with the thing of Jesus being the perfect example of humility. Of a humble person. We know how the story there of John 13 when when he went, he laid aside his, his outer garment or his coat, and he took a towel, and he tied it around his waist. And you know what that towel symbolizes? It symbolizes the lowest servant or slave in the household. That is what the servant or the slave did in a household. He was to take the towel around his waist because he was to wash the people's feet. Kind of the dirtiest job that anyone could have. But that's what Jesus did to the disciples. He humbled himself and he put on the towel. It's an expression of humility. And he got on his knees and he washed his disciples' feet. And he, there he gives, the, he gives the commandment by saying, If your Lord and Master, if I, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye ought to wash one another's feet. So, He gave us an example. 
the one who came from heaven and took on the form of a servant and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Turn with me to Philippians 2, verses 4 through 8, where we find those verses, part of those verses where I just quoted. But Jesus, think about Jesus, leaving the glories of heaven and kind of taking on the lowest form of a servant, a slave. Philippians 4, or sorry, Philippians 2, 4 through, through 8. I'm going to read these verses. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Notice verse 5, let this mind be in you. And then he goes on to explain of what Jesus did. But let this mind be in you. This is the kind of thinking that we're to have, what Jesus did here. Jesus was willing to esteem others better than himself and not just thinking he wasn't just thinking about his own life, but thinking about others. Jesus didn't think that he was too good of a person to be the one that God used in accomplishing his plan of salvation for mankind. Verse 8, it says, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. He was willing to leave everything behind for the good of others. That's humility. The Apostle Paul, in a number of his writings, implies that as Christians, there, there are things that we need to put off and things that we need to put on. And humbleness is one of them. Colossians 3.12 says, Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, and the list goes on. But there needs to be, it's, it's something about, it's doing something, putting on. There's some action. And if Jesus could come from heaven and die on a cross and, bear, and wear a towel and wash feet, what should we, his followers, do? Who should we be and what should we do? And I think as Christians, we should not only be known for our love, but also for our humility. We are to put on humbleness of mind, and so that it's, it's an attitude. To be humble is really an attitude. It's the opposite of arrogance and pride. Humility is, is a virtue that, that helps a person to experience gratitude for what they've been given and appreciate the cont contributions of others. And you can look at the, the extreme opposite of that is that when you... Vastly overestimate your own talents and concept of life. And then mistreat others as a means of defending your own self-image. 
That's what the human nature wants to do. When someone comes to us and challenges us with something, our human nature, we're quick to defend ourselves. That's what our human nature tends to rise up and defend. We want to defend our own image. But a humble person will accept others' input and, and criticism. A lack of humility. I think sometimes it's almost easier to explain what humility is not than what humility is. A lack of humility often resembles complacency, where an individual is too easily satisfied with themselves and can't handle or doesn't really accept the critical feedback that could help them grow, that could help them improve. But that's our human nature. We tend to want to defend ourselves rather than accept criticism and and uh, admonition in ways that could help us improve. Peter gives a few reasons why we should be humble. Looking at our text there in 1 Peter, chapter 5. First of all, he says there in verse 5, For God resisteth the proud. So why should you be humble? Think about how, what this is actually saying. God resisteth the proud. Now the word resist is a fairly strong word. And it means to withstand and to, to stand firm against. It's sort of, and it also has a military concept. It means to set an army in battle. So if you picture a battle scene and the army is all standing ready with their ammunition... They're all ready to do, they're, they're ready to battle, to go to battle. This is the thing of resisting. And so it gives the idea that God goes to war with the proud. God resists the proud. That's fairly strong language. God resisting the proud. The book of Proverbs has a lot to say about the proud person, about the humble person. In fact, it's in Proverbs where we have the, the seven abominations, where it lists the seven abominations, and a proud look is amongst them. Being proud is amongst those seven abominations. God resists the proud. But then he also, he does, he does the opposite. He giveth grace to the humble. He simply turns that around. He gives grace to the to the humble. He gives favor. The word grace there is favor. Has the idea of giving favor to. And that is for the humble. He will bless or pour out his favor on the humble. All of us, I think, need or recognize the need of God's grace in our lives. We as humans, we are deserving of God's wrath because of our sinfulness. But God is willing to extend his grace to the humble. Verse 6 ties in with that. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. As Christians, we are going to suffer. It, it doesn't matter who you are. You will suffer in some way or another. 
whether it's trials or afflictions or, or whatever it is that you're going through, we, we face suffering. But under the mighty hand of God, no matter what he takes us through, God is wanting us to humble ourselves to what his sovereign will is for our lives. He says there, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. When I think of God's mighty hand, that's God's sovereign hand. It's his will it's his, and his purpose. He's trying to accomplish something in our lives, even though we don't always understand it. And so it's during those times of suffering that he is wanting us to learn what humility is. It's often, you, you will see it in, in difficult times. When people go through difficult things, it's often when people will fall apart. But it's really God is wanting to shape us to be more like him. And he wants in our humility. It takes humility to trust God and in allowing him to take us through those difficult things and learning the things that he wants us to learn. He also says that he will exalt us when the time is right to do so. So you could ask, is that, does that mean in the present or in the future? When is he going to exalt us? But he says he will do that in due time. Maybe not in the here and now. But if we are faithful, our time will come that he will exalt us. We often think about exalting God. But here it turns it around to us, that he may exalt you in due time. The next thing we want to look at here is casting our cares. Verse 7, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. And this is a continuation from verse 6. What do humble people do? Humble people cast their cares on the Lord. The word care here means anxiety or worries or fears. And we all grapple with that. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we all grapple with worry, with fear at times. And he simply gives it, makes it very clear what we're to do with them. Casting all our cares upon him, for he careth for you. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's Jesus wanting us to give it all to him. George Muller tells the story of a boy who was walking along the road carrying this heavy load on his shoulder. And a man came along in a horse-drawn cart, and he offered him a ride. So the boy climbed into the cart, but he kept the heavy load on his shoulders. And the man soon asked him why he didn't put the load down on the cart. The boy replied that he didn't want to bother the horse with the extra load. Well, we look at that and say, that's a little absurd, right? It, it was, the difference was the same. The horse was carrying it no matter what. But do we do that in our own lives? 
Here it says, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Why not cast them to Jesus where they belong? And the word cast here has the idea of, of uh, casting like a fisherman casts a net or his line. It's cast. Cast it out there. Leave it go. That's the picture he gives of our burdens. Cast them out. Leave them go. Put them on Jesus and he will carry them. As humans, we're prone to doubt two things in times of intense trial. We question God's sovereignty, his control over circumstances, and we tend to ask, where is God in all this? And we doubt his purpose for us. Because if God is in control, then why is this happening to us? Those are things we often question as we go through hard things. Where is God in all this? Why do I need to go through this? But Jesus reminds us in Matthew 6, there, there talks about, uh, Jesus talks about the, the birds of the air and all that and how that he provides for them. And even so much more, if, if he cares and provides for them, how about you and I? Much more that he will care for us. Jesus cares for us, for you and I personally, in spite of how it may seem in the middle of a crisis. And we have the privilege of casting our cares on him. Just like a fisherman casts the net, we can cast our cares. Let him carry it. Philippians 4, 6, be careful for nothing. Don't be anxious about anything. Another version will say, don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known unto God. And we hear these things over and over again. Verses like this. I need reminders. We need reminders of what we can do with our burdens. The next thing we want to look at is constant alertness. The third thing here about being steadfast, constant alertness. Just because we're told not to worry about anything and to cast our cares does not mean that we can live just kind of a careless and flippant life in the way that we go about life. Peter goes on to remind us that we are to be sober. He uses the words here. Verse 8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. Ephesians six twelve says, also it says there in Ephesians six twelve. for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Let's not forget that as humans, humans are not really the enemies of God. The devil is. And even though we understand that God is all-powerful, a God who cares about his children, we can't relax spiritually. We need to recognize that Satan is relentless and wants to destroy and kill and steal, as Jesus said. And we have to be faithful in doing our part. But I don't think that humans are the enemies of the children of God. It's the devil that it is. Yes, humans can be the pawns 
in the devil's hands if they permit him to use them. And, and so we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. But when it comes to, to dealing with Satan, I think Christians often tend to go to two extremes. Either they see the devil behind every bush and they're casting out the demon, this spirit and that spirit, and, and casting out all the different demons. Or they're simply not aware of his presence at all and that he is real. And so you have the two sides that can, can kind of go in the ditch. We like to always think we're kind of in the middle and, and we, we got these things just right. So, but which way is too far in that? I'm not here to say. But also to, just a caution that you know, Satan isn't behind every bush. And as God's children, we don't need to fear him. But we need to be aware of who he is and what he can do. I was, a few weeks ago, I was at a, a, working at this place. And uh, it so happened that, that we buried a pipe. And so this was behind the drywall. And now we needed to find this pipe. And I had tried to find it. I had made one or two holes, and I, I didn't find it. The next day, I seen the homeowner there, and, and she was trying to explain where it was. And I, I had a general idea where it was, but I just didn't cut the hole at the right place. So I, I turned around to get my tools, and before I knew it, she was there praying over this thing that the demons would not confuse us where this pipe is. I, I was like, okay sort of surprised, I guess. But if you understand what I'm saying, I want to caution that, you know, sometimes we, we make mistakes, and I don't know that the devil is behind everything. But I'll leave that as it may, and, and for you to judge of where you go with some of those things. But I caution on some of them. We, we do have a God that is all-powerful, and we don't need to fear the devil. With him, we don't need to fear the devil. I want to say that cautiously also. Because at the same time, we need to be mentally alert and watchful. And the word devour here, if you look at that word, it means to gulp down. It says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. That's a strong word. It actually means to gulp down. He comes in a powerful way. It gives us the picture of, of him being a roaring lion. And this is what Satan does. He wants to catch us off guard. And we, get, we can get a picture of this in, uh, in Job. Where Jesus, or I'm sorry, where God was talking to Satan. In Job 1, it says there, and the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. I was going to also say that here in this, in this verse about Satan, I believe that Peter, Peter may possibly have had the Roman Colosseum in, in mind when he was mentioning this. Because he refers to the devil as a roaring lion walking around. During Nero's reign, reign, the Christians were put into the Colosseum. And there they, and, and the lions would go after them. You probably have seen pictures of a huge lion in that Colosseum. And that lion is alert. And he's looking for someone to devour. 
And that's the picture that we get here. That's the picture that Peter gives us here of the devil. He is out to destroy if someone is off guard. And so there you have it in Job of where God is talking to, to Satan. And it says that Satan came from going to and fro throughout the earth. Satan is out there looking for someone to destroy. And he will take that opportunity if anyone is off guard. One of the strategies is to hit. One of the strategies he uses us is to, to believe our, the lies about who we actually are and who we are in Christ. Satan has a way of pulling us into that, especially when our bodies are physically weak and mentally weak. There's inroads for Satan to come in there and to make us doubt and to destroy us. Satan knows exactly where we are weak. Verse 9 also tells us to resist him. We are to be alert and aware, but we also need to resist him. Standing firm in the faith. Verse 9 says, verse 9 says, Whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. Again, it uses that word resist. We talked about that before. The effect that resisting has, the power that that has. We are to resist him. You can read that, or James 4 also uses that idea. James 4, 7 says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That's a promise. Resist, and he will flee. We also need to understand that we are to flee certain sins, but resist the devil. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 says, Flee fornication. If you're tempted with sexual immorality, don't stand around rebuking Satan. God's word says flee. We are to flee those things. Not only resist, but flee. Peter also reminds us in verse 9 that we're not alone in the things that we go through knowing that, that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. So often we, we think that we're going through something that no one else has experienced, but there is others out there who are going through things like you are. And so we can be a comfort to each other. I want to talk briefly on this last point that I have here, confident of our future. Verse 10 says, But the God of all grace, who hath called us into his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have loved, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. Peter goes on to praise the name of the Lord when he says that God is the one who is so graciously calling us to his eternal glory. We are called unto his eternal glory. By Christ Jesus. And we really did nothing to be invited to this, to be with the Lord forever. He graciously invites us to walk with him here in this earth. And then we have the privilege and promise of being with him in eternity. And this is something we easily tend to forget. We, we are called to eternal glory. We, we tend to focus on the here and now. 
But when we put our eyes on eternity, it changes our perspective. He does say, though, that before we enter into glory, we will go through sufferings here on earth. On our account of our faith in Jesus. And while it may seem like the the, uh, sufferings might seem they are getting the, the best of us, Peter reminds us that these sufferings are only going to last a while. He says that in verse 10. After that ye had suffered a while. And in light of eternity, our sufferings are but a tiny speck. When I think of what the scripture says of a thousand years being as one day to the Lord and one day as a thousand years. And so none of us ever live, will ever get to live a thousand years. So in light of eternity, our sufferings are what? Not even a day. I don't know if that's comforting to you or not. When you think my, my sufferings are but a tiny speck in light of eternity. Because I realize too that our sufferings are real. And in reality they seem like a lifetime. But let's keep an eternal perspective. It is but a tiny speck. And it is there. We go through these things as it says here in this verse. To make you perfect to, to establish you, to strengthen you, and to settle you. They're meant to perfect us, to establish us in our faith, and to settle our hearts and minds on the solid rock. It's so that, w- so that we eventually reflect the character and nature of Christ in our lives. God is wanting us to be more like him and think more of him. And so it is. It is something about suffering that causes us to do that. As I said in the beginning too, it can make you a better person or it can make you a bitter person. You get to choose how you respond and cope with the things that you go through. But let's keep an eternal perspective. Seeing that God is the one who is so lovingly, graciously at work in us. Peter says that all glory and dominion or power belong to him forever and ever. Verse 11, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. None of us can take any glory for the Lord's work in our lives. But we should take every opportunity to give God the glory for all that he does both in us and through us. Peter then concludes this letter here, and he addresses a few people, Silvanus or, or Silas. This is really referring to Silas. We, you can read about Silas in the book of Acts. He was the one that went with Paul in his missionary journeys. And he refers to the church here of Babylon, or probably the church of Rome. It's the people that he had connections with. And so he's just simply addressing these people as he closes this letter. And he tells them there in verse 14, he says, Greet ye one another with a kiss of love. Peace be with you all that are in Christ Jesus. He encourages us to show love, to be affectionate toward each other. It mentions here 
Greet ye one another with a kiss of charity or love. Lord willing, maybe I'll have some time I have a message on that verse and that subject on its own. I do not plan to today. As you can see, the time is here to close. But I want to leave with you just the words that he gives here. Peace be with you all that are in Christ Jesus. We sang that song, peace, perfect peace. It's Jesus that gives us that peace. And peace that we can find in the midst of the storm, trusting in God's goodness and sovereignty. May we together reveal God's glory in the difficult things that we face and the things that we go through. And may we also be a help to each other in our suffering, the, the tough things that we go through. But most of all, let's, glory, let's glorify our Heavenly Father. Kneel with me for prayer. Our righteous eternal.